I want to start this morning by describing two very different men to you and then asking a couple of important questions. The first man I want to describe professes to be a Christian. He gets paid $25 million a year to train and to play the game of football. In particular, he gets to catch passes from his quarterback for $25 million a year. The man does good work in the city where his team is located. He is known for working with kids. He is known for raising money for the homeless. He is widely recognized by the world as a good guy with a big heart. His lifestyle is typical of a celebrity athlete. He has an 8,000 square foot home in a gated community. He has a fleet of sports cars in his garage. He takes exotic vacations to places around the world. His clothes are always stylish and expensive and immaculate. His Instagram page is what you might expect. It's filled with photos of him living it up. Fancy food and drinks, partying with his crew, beautiful women hanging all over him. But when he gets a chance, he's quick to thank God for his career. In fact, his favorite thing to say whenever a microphone's in his face is, I'm so blessed. And he even mentions the name of Jesus on occasion. At times, he's been invited to speak at the megachurch that, that he attends whenever he's in town, where he talks about how good God is and encourages people to keep enlarging their faith so that they'll be able to see God working in their lives. That's the first man. The second man also professes to be a Christian, but he has a much less spectacular career. He's a pastor and evangelist in sub-Saharan Africa. He lives in a cramped, thatch-roofed home with his wife and five children. He devotes most of his time traveling between villages, sharing the good news of salvation in Jesus, and seeing what physical needs are out there and how he might be able to meet those. This man also has a social media presence, but on his Instagram, you'll find mostly just photos of smiling faces, pictures of the converts that he's made, pictures of families from his church. You'll find videos of little kids singing on a Sunday morning in a dirt floor building that serves as the place where that church gathers. Recently, he was preaching in a particular village when uniformed members of a militia showed up with guns and began shouting threats. And to make their point, they grabbed the pastor, pulled him out from behind the pulpit. They beat him with sticks in front of the others until he was lying in a pool of his own blood. After the soldiers left, members of the congregation attended to his wounds. He got back up from the ground. He told everybody to sit down again. And then he led that church in prayer for those who had just beaten him. Asking that God would be merciful and to save them. And then he continued preaching the rest of that gospel sermon that he had prepared for that morning. Now, questions. Two professing Christians, two completely different contexts. Which one is truly blessed? And which of those two is hated by the world? It's not hard to imagine that the world embraces that football player, is it? He is everything that they all want to be, even with the references to his faith, because the world is not threatened by that type of lip service to God or to Jesus. It's culturally acceptable. It is surface-level religion. It may be harder for us to accept the truth that the world does, in fact, hate that pastor in Africa because of his determination to faithfully preach the Bible. They hate him because he points to the need for people everywhere to repent of their sins and submit their lives to Jesus. He teaches that they need to put off sin and die to themselves so that they can love and serve others. And he won't back down from any of it, even if he's physically beaten. That pastor is an uncompromising man. He is firm in his values and his beliefs, and he will tell you clearly with a gentle smile on his face, friend, repent and follow Jesus. And for that, the world will always hate him. So what's your view of persecution? Is your view of persecution the same as the Bible's? Do you have any idea how much the world hates you? I have found that most Christians have no idea at all, no clue. In fact, most of them have a sense of entitlement, even today still, believing that their lives should be filled with consistent blessings from God, meaning free from trials and free from tribulations. Why? Because they're on God's side, right? Because they go to church. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, asks some really good questions. He writes this, are there no painful aspects to being a Christian anymore? 
Is it all happiness and light? Even though Christ himself was a man of sorrows who walked through the valley of the shadow of death? Do we participate only in his joy but not in his tears? Does he alone bear the cross? This morning we get to talk about persecution. So grab your Bibles. We're going to John chapter 15. If you're new with us or visiting, we've been in John for quite a while now, and we're getting there. We're in chapter 15. <laughs> it's, it's an ongoing joke, so just bear with us. So throughout the last chapter and a half, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had been working diligently to try to relieve the stress and the fear that his disciples were under in that moment, right? He kept saying to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. He'd spoken to them about this dwelling place that he would go and, and prepare for them. And he told them that soon he'd be sending the Holy Spirit and that that Spirit would come and, and be their strength and remind them of all the things that Jesus had taught. He even talked about how it was better that he go away, that by the Spirit they would do even greater works and he had promised that he would not leave them as orphans, that they would continue to abide in him, as in the vine, right? Producing spiritual fruit to the glory of the Father. And then finally, last Sunday, Jesus made this amazing statement. He said, no longer do I call you slaves, but friends. And we looked at that. The God of the universe, the Son of God, calls you friend. What an amazing thing. He says, for the th all the things that I've heard from my Father, I have now made known to you. You have the secrets of life in the universe, but now, as we come to today's passage, there's a distinct shift. Beginning in verse 18, Jesus is about to reveal another important truth about what lies in the future. It's a dark side to what the disciples are going to experience once Jesus goes away. And perhaps, you know, having heard all these promises, the disciples were starting to get excited. Like, maybe we're only going to face receptive crowds and it's, everything's going to go smooth and it's going to be just one thing after another that just goes so well, but that is not the case, is it? Jesus knew the truth. They needed, in this moment, before he's arrested, they needed to hear the blunt reality that their lives and the message that they were going to share is going to provoke not just resistance from the world, but deep-seated hatred everywhere they go. In fact, the same hatred and threats that Jesus himself endured from the scribes and the Pharisees, that same hate and persecution is now about to fall on their heads. And I think Jesus wanted to make sure that his friends here weren't going to be surprised by it. They weren't going to be caught off guard or unprepared for what was about to hit them. So let's look at the text here. Verse 17, see if this is familiar. This I command you that you love one another. Now, how many times has he, has he commanded this already, right? But he says it again. This is Jesus, the master teacher, using repetition to emphasize for his guys what matters most. But in this case now, that statement is also going to serve as a contrast to what he says next. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. So look at the contrast there between verse 17 and what he says in verses 18 and 19. The world will be characterized by what it hates. Look around today. That is so true, is it not? The world is characterized by what it hates, but the church, the church is different. It must be known by who it loves. Love for God, love for Christ, love for one another. Friends, this is the contrast that we are supposed to be drawing in the world today in Santa Clarita as followers of Christ. You're either on team hate or team love. There's no middle ground. So choose this day whom you will serve. Verse 20, remember the word I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. That comes from chapter 13 when, when he was washing the disciples' feet. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So here's a second contrast, right? The disciples are going to be targeted by the same people that targeted Christ when he walked the earth. But there's good news. The same type of people who believed in him will also believe when they hear the disciples teach. So there's both a warning and a promise 
in that statement. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Look at verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. And how many times have we seen this theme woven into John's gospel, this inseparable union between God the Son and God the Father? You cannot love one and hate the other or vice versa, right? To reject Yahweh's Messiah is to reject Yahweh himself. That would have been a shocking indictment for the Jews of that day. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Now, what Jesus is referring to here and up in verse 22 as well is known as the greater light theory. Whoever's received a greater or more full revelation of God stands under a greater weight of responsibility to respond to that light. And failure to respond to that light carries a more severe condemnation. So the one who rejects Jesus' person and his works incurs the deepest possible stain of guilt before the judgment seat of God. If you, if you stood there and, and listened to Jesus teach and saw his works, even raising people from the dead, and you didn't respond, you've been given greater light and you bear greater responsibility for that. Finally, verse 25, but they, this is a reference to the Jews, they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. Their own scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, this fulfills it. And this is a quote from Psalm 69, a, a messianic psalm of David. They hated me without cause. So listen to the, the great contrast being drawn here. On the one hand, should you choose to follow Jesus, know that there is a heavy cost to that. It will cost you something. You are guaranteed to be hated and persecuted. Sign me up, Right? But on the other hand, should you choose to side with the world, you have no excuse for sin. And therefore, you will be spiritually lost for all eternity. Choose this day whom you will serve. Okay, what does all this mean for us? We recently came out of our Reformation study. We looked at a whole bunch of historical things. And we noted in that study how Christianity took root most deeply on the continent of Europe. And Christianity has always enjoyed a favored status there. And the same can be said for America, right? Since our founding, I think almost 250 years now, Christianity has been the dominant faith in our land. But what's becoming painfully obvious now, and some of you know this because you've traveled the world, over the past 50 or 60 years, the sun has been setting on Christianity in Europe. Today, if you go visit there, you will, you will see these massive, beautiful cathedrals, right? And they are hollow, and they are empty. They're more museums than they are churches because nobody wants a part of it. And today we're beginning to see a similar trend here in America. Declining numbers, denominational confusion, constant infighting, and really a failure to hold the line on some of the, the, the essential truths of the faith that define historic Christianity. All of that is slipping away right now. And as our culture continues to spiral down into moral depravity and more extreme forms of pagan behavior, because that's what we're seeing, right? It's now becoming safer and more fashionable for people in the world to express their absolute contempt for Christ and for his church. It's becoming very easy, very easy. Our enemies are emboldened right now and they're pushing every boundary they can and they're seeking to take advantage of the weakness of the church. And I'm afraid that it's likely that over the next few decades, those of us who are willing to take a stand, who will continue to come here week after week and stand on biblical truth, we're going to be looking back at passages like John 15 more often than we ever have because we're going to need strength as times get more difficult. Now, I know this is a relatively new concept for believers in this country, but you have to know that for past generations, hatred and persecution and suffering have been the norm, not the exception for Christians. From the very inception of the church, the world has hated Christ and reacted to his followers with great violence. History is replete with it. Hatred coming from the Jews, persecution under the pagan Romans, Muslims attacking from the east, Viking raids from the north, arrest and torment from the corrupt Catholic church. 
And over the centuries, Christian converts have been tortured and imprisoned. They've been hung and burned at the stake and crucified and fed to the lions and more, all because they refuse to renounce their loyalty to Jesus as their king. That's our history. And for those who weren't martyred, who weren't sent directly into the presence of Christ, it actually was worse. Their homes were plundered, their wives raped, their children sold into slavery. Christians throughout the ages forced into a secretive existence, living on the margins of society, having to gather in catacombs and caverns. Can you imagine? With just a scrap, one little scrap of God's word in their hands and blessed to be able to gather in secret, but always concerned about the fear of being discovered. And they could have escaped all of this by doing one thing, simply deny Christ and go back to the world, but they refused. They refused. That's our history. With the discovery of the new world and the great Christianary movements of the 18th and 19th century, things got even more dangerous. And not just for the missionaries, who are now trekking into unknown lands, but for every single convert that they made, life got very, very dangerous. Men and women who were now being persecuted, sometimes even executed, murdered by their own tribes, by their own families, because they had now come to know Christ. And what surprises people the most about the hatred of the world is that actually in the 20th century, Christians were persecuted for their faith more than, any, more than all of the ages combined. More Christians were persecuted for their faith in the 20th century, where most of you were born, right? Just checking. The rise of godless secular ideologies were at the root of this. Marxism and communism and fascism led to massive purges against churches and Christians of all stripes. In Russia, under Lenin and Stalin, Hitler in Germany, Mao Zedong in China, Idi Amin and Robert Mugabe in Africa, Castro in Cuba, and so many more, all persecutors of the church. For the past hundred years, faithful Christians around the world have not only been killed, but they have languished in prison cells and gulags and labor camps. And again, Christian communities being forced to go underground, to meet in secret, all under the threat of being discovered and arrested. If you've never considered praying for the persecuted church, it's possible that this morning is a good wake-up call for you. Because we're the body of Christ. And when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. We need to be praying. Now, that's the... That's the the dark side of, of, of this whole passage, right? This is the reality. It, did, did it surprise God that any of those things happened? No, because Jesus warned us about it. He told us about it. Verse 19, the world has always hated me, he says, and because I chose you out of the world, they're going to hate you too. Again, in America, we tend not to read right past that. We don't want to accept that. We can't imagine that, but the world hates you. So wherever the gospel goes, Wherever the true people of God gather in Christ's name, you're going to find that type of hatred. And in particular, in countries where the church has no political support, where the church is at the mercy of governments and religions, those, those forces will combine together to rage against the church and to lash out with all kinds of power and cruelty. And for those of us who study the Bible, we know, we know what's behind that as well. We know why, right? Jesus told the crowds back in John chapter 8, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's the enemy, it's the evil one, it's the devil who sponsors all of this persecution and hatred. So the world simply reflects the character of the one whom they serve. So it doesn't surprise us that the world is angry, that they lie about us, or that they hate us. So, having said that, let me ask you an interesting question. Can you see why the world hates us? Think about that for a second. It's really not that difficult to understand why they hate us. First of all, I'll give you a few reasons. First of all, like all spiritually blind people, the world is convinced that they are enlightened. They believe they're enlightened. They believe they should be free from the restraints that a God would put on their lives. As Paul says, they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They're deceived right now, but they think they're enlightened. And so the world explodes at the notion of God's standard for holiness. 
Now, why would they be so upset about that? Because those standards highlight the sinfulness of all that they do. It provides a contrast to their practices. Don't tell me what I should do, they shout. Or what I shouldn't do, they shout. But it's not really us shouting, is it? We're not the ones doing it. We're just pointing them to the word of God and saying, it's his standard. It's his standard, right? And the world really hates when we do that, don't they? When we pull out our Bibles, they really hate that. The fact is, though, we have to speak up about the ugliness of all all these things that the world loves, not because we want to control people, but because we want them to know that sin and judgment and hell are absolute realities that they should not ignore. It's out of an abundance of love that we share these things, right? Out of that love, we speak against things like sexual immorality and abortion and stealing and drunkenness and divorce and gender fluidity and gay pride and all these other things. Those are realities that will will direct people into hell. So it's not loving to ignore it, is it? We've got to speak up. But of course, most people in the world are not going to like hearing that. And in fact, we should expect that they're going to strike back at us when we do speak up. They're going to call us all kinds of names. They're going to call us intolerant. They're going to call us judgmental and all the names that we've all heard. So that's the first thing. The standard of God's holiness reveals the depth of their sin, and they hate it. Second thing, the world hates us when we make an exclusive claim on truth. We stand up and say, look, there's only one way to God, and we know it, and that drives them crazy. It goes against their pluralistic way of seeing life. They want the many paths to heaven plan, right? And in particular, they want the plan that they're on because then they think they can get to heaven. So they're tolerant of all kinds of things, right? How much tolerance are we seeing in our culture right now for some of the most ludicrous concepts and ideas? It's nuts. But the one thing they cannot tolerate is the idea of Christian absolutes. They'll, they'll tolerate the fact that men can get pregnant, right? Or that you can change your sex. But to say we have an absolute truth that they cannot possibly bear. What they'd like to do instead is construct their own reality without God. That way they can love themselves above all else and at the same time not have to be forced to deal with the badness that they knows within them, right? That their conscience tells them about. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to think about it. So I'll construct my own reality apart from God. Here's the third reason the world hates us. We say that all people need to be converted from what they are now. They need to be changed. They need to be reborn, changed from the inside out. We teach that they have to turn from their present ways and turn towards Christ, towards new affections and new desires. And by saying that, we're pointing out the obvious, that what a person is naturally is antagonistic to God. What they are, the way they were born, is antagonistic to God, and that invites his judgment, not his blessing. So there has to be change. You can probably see why that message is hard to receive. Finally, one last reason, and there's there's more, but these are four good ones. The world hates us because we're just so darn different from them. We're weirdos. We're weirdos. We make them uncomfortable. When we walk in the light In the power of the Spirit, we make them uncomfortable. If we're abiding in the vine and walking in the Spirit, they will see us, as the Bible describes us, as aliens, as strangers in the world. And the more spiritual fruit comes out of our lives, the more different we're going to seem from them. What the world will recognize is that we were once loyal to their kingdom, and now we've transferred our allegiance to a different kingdom. And when you abandon a group of people that were committed to a, a common cause, Your absence now becomes an indictment on what they still believe. You've left them, and they'll hate you for that because you won't run headlong into sin with them anymore. You're just different. So as you step back and take an honest look at it, yeah, it's not hard to see why the world hates us. It's not hard to see why they would like to see us taken out of the way. That's the story of the church, church history. Now, there is an easy fix. If you don't want any of that, there's an easy fix. Just compromise your faith. Just start making friends with the world, and it will all go away. They will welcome you back with open arms. That's Jesus' point in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But we can't do that. We can't do that if we're true followers of Christ. 
Our loyalty is to Jesus, our King, and not to any world system. Choose this day whom you will serve. Now, I'm convinced that those are all good and valid and practical reasons for why the world hates us, but I want you to notice something here in John 15. Jesus doesn't mention any of those things, right? Those are just some practical outflow. Jesus is talking about a a, a hatred that runs actually deeper than all of that stuff I just talked about. Political, you know, social, cultural beefs that we have with people in the world. In this passage, Jesus points to something much more fundamental, much more visceral, right? It's theological. It's ontological. Look what he says. Verse 21, they do not know the one who sent me. And then in verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. So this is beyond the practical. Ultimately, it's a hatred of the creator. It's a, a hatred of the one that they, they fear that someday is going to judge them. They hate that being. So it's more than just practical. For those whose God is found in this world, they hold a violent animus towards God. Paul writes in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is death. It's hostile toward God for it will not subject itself to the law of God. So there's going to be hostility. Now the truth is, as Jesus said, the world really doesn't know God, does it? Right? They operate off of a caricature of what they think God is. Too many people in the world do this, right? They've, they've heard a little soundbite about the Bible or a soundbite from a sermon or a friend said this, but they don't know God. They, they picture him to be a tyrant and a monster, but they know, they know nothing of God's grace, right? They know nothing of his compassion and his tenderness, how long-suffering he is. They've developed this caricature of him and they've distorted it and twisted it into something ugly when it's not. Jesus says, they don't know my father. Look at verses 20 and 21. Here's the theological and ontological reason for this hatred. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. These things they will do to you for my name's sake, he says, because of me. They will persecute you because of me, Jesus says. It's our association with Jesus that will always be the world's biggest objection. And the closer we get to him, the the more we look like him and act like him in what we say and how we live, the more hatred that will come your way. It's a promise. It's a promise from the Lord. But here's what I want you to focus on with this, and this is very important to understand. It it really isn't you they're persecuting. Their target is Jesus. You're just standing in the way. You're just standing in the way. It's really a hatred of God and Christ that falls vicariously on you and I because in some measure, as we stand in front of them, we're representing this one that they despise. Jesus is the smell of death to people who are perishing. And they don't want to smell it. You're just in the way. And so they're going to take it out on you. And if to avoid having to face the truth about yourself, if the Son of God has to be eliminated, then so be it. That's what's going on. That, that's what's going, if we could pull back the curtain, that's really what's going on behind the scenes. So now that we've laid out those cold hard facts about how the world feels about us, let's talk about persecution itself and how we respond to it. I've heard it said by Christians today, it's hard to fathom why anybody would welcome being persecuted. Right? It's it's hard to fathom that we would welcome that type of pain and suffering. And I understand why they would say that because no sane person would really be excited about being arrested and thrown into a, a damp, dark, cold jail. Nobody would be excited about having all their possessions taken away or being physically attacked. But consider what I just described. Listen, in the face of the world's hatred, we stand in the place of Jesus as their target. Today in the world, before this world that hates you, you stand in the place of Christ. Think about this. He stood in your place 2,000 years ago when he was nailed to a cross. And today he calls you to stand in his place, in front of people that will hate you because they hated him first. And that's why Christians through the ages, if you've ever wondered, why do Christians throughout the ages talk about martyrdom as this great badge of honor? It sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? This idea of being persecuted is the highest calling and the highest privilege. It's because in that moment, you got to stand in the place of Jesus and suffer wrath directed at him 
from other human beings. That's an honor. Paul spoke about this all the time, didn't he? And coming from a man who not only devoted his life to spreading the gospel, but died for it, was beheaded for his faith, his words carry real weight. He said it was his goal, and I'll put this on the screen, he said it was his goal to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, to share in that. That's what he wanted. That's what he prayed for, to be conformed to the death of his Lord. The Greek there, uh, oh, and then listen to this, uh, the second passage from chapter one, same letter. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The thing to see there, the Greek verb for granted to you, charizomai, refers to a grace. It refers to something good, something kind. So Paul is saying there in Philippians chapter one, it's a kindness, it's a grace that God would provide you with an opportunity to suffer for Jesus. Do we see it that way? Do we embrace that? John Bunyan, some of you guys know that name, 17th century Puritan, he was forced, John Bunyan was thrown in prison a number of times, he was forced to endure all kinds of false accusations about his character, and here's what he said, quote, I bind these lies and slanders to me as an ornament. That's a good way to look at it. The world hates me, I wear it as a prize for my Lord. Now, one of the mistakes we can make when we consider persecution is this. We think to ourselves, well, that Bunyan guy was, he was something. So of course he was persecuted. But see, persecution and hatreds for the, the giants of the faith, not little old me. Right? We try to slip out from this by saying that. But we all know that that's not true, right? Paul said to Timothy, all who desire, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is a promise. It is a certainty. In a second, we'll look at how that might happen in our lives today. But Peter agreed. He said, to this you've been called, he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's a calling, to stand in the place of Christ and to suffer, to share in that koinonia, that fellowship of sufferings. Now, to be sure, God in his sovereignty is going to determine the measure of the persecution that you and I face. Maybe I get more than you, maybe not. God will determine that, but the world's hatred will absolutely guarantees that you will experience some measure of it. Guarantees. And again, one of the great points from this passage in John 15 is that we've been put on notice so that it won't overwhelm us when it comes. Listen, this is Peter's, this is a famous passage, you might have heard it before. Peter, such a practical point. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, why are you overwhelmed and surprised at this, people? You've been warned about this from the beginning, that this is coming. He goes on, but rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So if you want to rejoice in his glory when he comes back, rejoice now in suffering for his cause. That's what Peter's getting at. So question, how do you and I experience it today? If you're, if you're processing it right now and you're like, ooh, man, I'm not sure I really, I really feel any hatred from the world. I'm not sure I really suffer at all. Well, we shouldn't limit our understanding of persecution to just extreme examples, right? We don't say, well, because I haven't been thrown in jail or I haven't been threatened with death that somehow I'm not suffering persecution. Jesus spoke of a number of ways that we can, we can suffer. In Matthew 5, he talked about being insulted, about being reviled. He spoke of people falsely saying all kinds of evil against you because of me. So persecution can come not, not just in physical attacks, but in verbal attacks as well. Slander against your character. Lies that are told around the office that are designed to harm you. Could be ridiculed or abusive language that's directed your way, or it could be something really tangible. For example, you get a lower grade from a teacher or from a professor because they know you're a Christian and, and he hates Jesus, so he hates you as well. 
or a loss of a position on a sports team for the very same reason. It might be found closer to home when family members who don't know Jesus, you show up at that Christmas party and they mock you and they threaten to disown you and they shame you in front of the rest of the family. You might be treated rudely in some places around town. Pray before your meal and see what your, how your waitress responds to that. You might be treated rudely. You might get attacked harshly on social media for posting a Bible verse or posting something related to your faith. You might get canceled by aggressive social justice warriors. That can happen. So there's all kinds of ways that we can be persecuted. How many of us felt just a little bit of this with COVID-19? Sorry, you can't open your church. You cannot gather to worship God, but the bars and the strip clubs, those are essential. You remember that? Yeah. That's the world's hatred of Jesus and his church. Now, as I say that, think about that, all the ways that we can suffer today. As I say that, here's a quick caution. Persecution is not defined as just any normal hardship or trial that you have to go through. Okay? What Jesus and the authors of the New Testament are talking about is suffering that comes as a direct result of your uncompromising devotion to Christ and your witness for him. So there has to be a correlation there. You can't just say, man, I didn't get a raise at work. I'm under persecution. Okay? It has to be tied to your uncompromising faith in Christ, your devotion to him, and your witness. Jesus said this. This is so important. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not for being a jerk, right? Not because we've acted like a jerk to people and now they're responding with verbal assaults. You brought that on yourself. No, when you're persecuted because of your righteous stand, that's when you get, I'll just air quotes, that's when you get credit for being persecuted. Otherwise, no, you're just a jerk. Peter actually addressed this as well. You see, oh, you see it on the screen. 1 Peter 4. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, ah, what's the implication? Those other people? Not Christians. But as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. In other words, if you're going to suffer and you're going to claim persecution, make sure it's for a godly reason. Make sense? And when you do, the Bible says that God's blessing is upon you. Back to Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's the key, because of me. Okay? I mean, look, you're gonna get it. You might get into an argument with somebody at a restaurant. That's not persecution. Because of Jesus, you were persecuted. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Not your earthly rewards in heaven. Peter adds, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, going back to my original example at the beginning of the sermon, notice the Lord never says in the Bible, rejoice and be glad when you become materially successful in life. He never says rejoice and be glad that you got that big home or that new job that you wanted or that fleet of cars. But he does say, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted and that we're blessed, not with earthly rewards, but with heavenly rewards. That's, that's where our reward comes. Listen, ultimately, persecution is good for you and it's good for the church. It's a net positive for the church. And that's a hard truth, isn't it? But it's been proven over and over again in church history that that's true. You've probably heard this famous quote. From Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church. That's how the church grows, through persecution. A Romanian pastor named Joseph writes this. Persecution brings about strong bonds of unity, compassion, and tenderheartedness in the church. Church could use some of that today, right? Persecution helps. A Russian evangelist named George writes, in the face of tyranny, oppression, and humiliation, the church has no option but to be the church. Hmm. A Croatian pastor also named Joseph says this, disguised as evil, 
Persecution comes to us as the ultimate manifestation of God's good providence. You're like, wow, really? Yeah. Over and over again, that has proven to be true. Samuel Lamb was a, uh, before he died in 2013, was a pastor of an underground church in communist China. He spent 20 years of his life in prison, being arrested multiple times because he refused to stop preaching about Jesus. Here's what he said. In America, the church has experienced prosperity and is growing weaker. In China, the church has experienced persecution and is growing stronger. All I can say is persecution is much better than prosperity. Can you argue with that? Where's the lie? That reminds us that persecution is not primarily about individuals, but it's about the body of Christ as a whole, the body of Christ in all places across the world, a collective reality for us. Again, because we share in one another's sufferings. We actually have that statement in our own church covenant, don't we? It's important to see that we will endeavor with tenderness and empathy to always bear one another's burdens and sorrows. That's, that's the concentric circle here in our local body, but it extends out to the ends of the earth. Because when one one part of the body is suffering, we're all suffering. Paul speaks of this reality in several of his letters. Philippians 1.7, In my imprisonment, he says, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. In 2 Timothy 1.8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. That's what we need to do today. Join with the persecuted church all over the world. And if you want information about how you can pray for them, how you can get information about the persecuted church, I guarantee you Adam can help you. He's seen it with his own eyes in various parts of the world. Go to Voice of the Martyrs. There are are resources out there that can help you. But those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to be lifting them up in prayer. Okay, last thing. How do we respond to this? Personally, how do we respond to people that hate us? How do we do it? Well, we shouldn't lie to ourselves about the nature of this adversarial relationship with the world. It's real. Jesus promised it. They're going to hate you if you live and speak. That's the first thing. It's sort of like, the, you know, admit first that you're an alcoholic. Before you, before you admit that, you can't move on. So just admit the truth that Jesus says here, that the world hates you as your foundational truth and go from there. Don't live in denial of it. They hate you. Now here's the challenge. The Bible gives us no room or reason to respond to their hate with our own hate. As much as we'd like to sometimes, right? In our flesh, we get angry. We're like, I want to to punch back. We can't do it. We're not to retaliate. Paul says this, do not repay evil for evil. By the way, Paul's writing to the... Believers in Rome who were experiencing great persecution. If anybody had cause to respond with hate and violence, it was believers in the city of Rome. But he says, do not do it. Do not repay evil for evil. Instead, bless those who persecute you. Persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you trust that God's going to make all things right someday, that he's going to vindicate you for your faith in him and he's going to punish evildoers? Then leave room for him. Leave that vengeance to him. Don't take it upon yourself. And it's not easy, right? But in those moments, if you're, I mean, imagine you're you're in a situation where somebody is just flat out hating you at work, wherever you might be. Remember that you're standing in for Christ. Remember that you're standing in that gap. They hate Jesus, but they're looking at you. But you are his ambassador in that moment. He's the one who was silent before his accusers. He's the one who, in the face of the greatest injustice and violence the world has ever known, kept entrusting himself to God the Father and did what was right, did what was godly. So as ambassadors for Christ, We have to take this command seriously. We have to respond to hate with patience and with blessing. And in that process, to hope that that hater is going to see a little bit of Jesus in you. And be moved by that. 
And listen, the situations you're gonna find yourself in, they're, they're so varied, there's no one response fits every situation. It's gonna require wisdom in how to respond. Paul talks about this as well in Colossians 4, right? Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. That is your opportunity. When hate comes your way, stand in the gap, be the Jesus, you know, that the only Jesus that this person may ever see and conduct yourself with wisdom. Make the most of that opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. Now, as I say that, let me clarify, I don't think we're called to become spiritual punching bags or spiritual doormats where we just stand there and take physical abuse or take verbal abuse. There definitely is times when wisdom says, I gotta go, I'm moving away from this. There are also times when we realize that we're not making progress with this person, that hostility is rising. So we might choose to remain silent so that we're not casting our, our pearls before swine or we're just getting up and shaking the dust off our clothes and moving on. That might be the wisest thing to do in that situation. But here's the key. The gospel itself is the offensive part of what we bring to the table, not us. The gospel itself is difficult and offensive, but we should not be the source of offense as people. The message, yes, us as people, no. Amen? We're not to be insensitive or rude or obnoxious to those in the world. We're not to judge the world. They don't live by our standard. How can we hold them to a standard that they don't believe? Let the gospel offend or draw people. And that's completely up to God. It's completely up to his sovereign will. But stand in the gap for Christ. All right, last thought, and I'll promise I'll wrap up. In spite of the world's hatred for him and for the church, God still plans to save a portion of humanity. He's planned it. He's purposed it. And that is nothing but his sovereignty, his love, and his amazing grace. When we talk about people being the enemy of God and being transferred from the dark, kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, this is a prime example. These people hate him yet he's going to choose to save them anyway. By the way, that was us once. Lest we get cocky, that was us once. But the key to his plan, actually, and I'm gonna point you to the last two verses in this chapter now, because this is the key to the whole plan. Verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, that's the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, look at verse 27, and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. See, without the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples aren't gonna be able, be able to go out and save anybody. They need the Spirit, right? Because you can't talk people into the kingdom of God. You cannot talk people into repenting and submitting to Jesus. I don't care how good of an evangelist you are. In your own strength, with your own words, you have no power to get somebody transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's a work of God. And passages like this are the primary reason why I left Arminianism decades ago. Think about this. If the world hates God, hates Jesus, and hates me, and if they're predisposed to love themselves, how on earth can I talk them into giving all that up and believing in God? I can't. I don't have that power. The only way to see haters of God come to a place of repentance and saving faith is for us to be faithful to testify about the truth, and then let the Spirit of God work. That, that's our job. That, that is all our job is. Be faithful to testify about the gospel, right, with a sincere heart and a love for people, and then let the Spirit illuminate minds. Let the Spirit effectually call. Let the Spirit regenerate hearts. And by God's grace, some people, amongst all the haters of this world, will supernaturally be saved. That's the biblical story. So remembering that the world hates us and that only God can save, that informs how we ought to respond to hostile people. Let me just say this first of all. We're not gonna see vast amounts of people get saved. Do you know in Jesus' day, not a lot of people got saved? And I think his witness was pretty good. So let's not fool ourselves. Here's another thing. We don't have to downplay the difficult parts of our faith when we share the gospel. We don't have to water down truths because, oh, we want to be more attractive to people. 
We're not salespeople. We just represent Jesus and present the gospel with love. But we don't have to sell anything on people. By the way, we don't have to try to be cooler than we actually are either. We don't have to try to employ the world's tactics in order to draw more people in. We don't, don't need to try to straddle both worlds to say I'm, I'm kind of worldly and kind of godly because I want to somehow draw more people in. That is the wrong strategy. Because no matter what style we employ, what kind of coffee we drink, what kind of clothes we wear, how great our social media looks, what our music sounds like, we are still going to be hated by the world because they hate Jesus. Period. So again, our strategy is simple. Be faithful to Scripture in all that we do. Do it to the best of our skill and giftedness. Make the most of every opportunity that God puts before us and then trust Him for the results. That's it. The Holy Spirit will make, make you and I a fragrance of life for some and a fragrance of death for others. Amen? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Let's pray and thank God for his grace and for his sovereign rule. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for this wake-up call this morning, this sort of cold slap in the face to bring us around to see the reality of this world that we live in. And Lord, it causes us first and foremost to to fall on our knees and to thank you that we, you've rescued us out of this same situation. You have saved us from our own arrogance and blindness and ignorance and you have brought us into this kingdom of light, Lord, and every person here can now worship you as both Savior and Lord. That in and of itself is enough for this morning, Lord. We could pr- there, there would be no end to the praise if we just talked about that. But Lord, now you've shown us even more about how we can look out at this world that is so filled with hate. And Lord, you've told us how now we need to respond to that, to be aware of its reality. But now, how do we respond? Not hating in kind, Lord, but being patient, being a blessing to others. And Lord, to trust you completely with all of the results. Lord, I'm so grateful that we don't have to bear that burden, that it all comes down to how good our sales pitch is, but that you will save whom you will save. So we thank you for your sovereignty this morning, for your love for this world, and for those that you're purposing to save. We thank you for your amazing grace. And Lord, even now as we go back to singing, Lord, may all those things ruminate in our hearts as we lift up your name this morning. For your glory, for our good, we pray. Amen.